1: This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: And a very good afternoon, and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm not Al Cresta. I am, however, Matthew Bunsen, filling in for Al today. It is a privilege always uh, to fill in for Al. As I say every time I host, I cannot possibly replace him, but it is a privilege and a joy to spend some time with you, trying to unpack some of the news stories and interesting stories uh, that uh, we're looking at, not just at EWTN News, but as Catholics who want to be informed. For those of you who may not be familiar with me, I am Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News. I'm also the uh, creator of a series for the network of EWTN on the Doctors of the Church and uh, somebody who is a ardent consumer of news and uh, the news really focused as it frequently does here in dc today was the national prayer breakfast in washington dc and next week we have the national catholic prayer breakfast that will be honoring the great lawyer and writer and pro-life advocate helen Alvarez at today's national prayer breakfast president biden made an appeal for peace it comes at a time of severe global crises including two wars in ukraine and gaza bitter cultural decline and fragmentation and polarization in the country as well as ongoing persecution of believers christians in particular across the globe i'm joined by ken oliver editor-in-chief of the catholic news agency to talk about prayer breakfasts, as well as some of the more important stories cna is covering including violence against christians in india and nigeria as well as uh, the earth summit the international religious freedom summit that just concluded this week here in DC and talking about religious freedom we're seeing a great deal happening here in the United States that is distressing to defenders of religious rights and protections as well as some very important developments to follow the term for example that we're going to be hearing quite a bit about in the coming months is the doctrine of chevron deference i know that's it's a lot to it it's a mouthful but it relates to the regulatory state and how much deference should be given to it and it might have profound ramifications for the balance of power among the branches and how far government agencies can go in interpreting laws and yes chevron has had pretty grave potential in the struggle to preserve religious freedom we need to look no further for example than the contraceptive mandate that was one of the core components of the affordable care act so-called obamacare Also in this hour, are certain states denying kids parents adoption rights if they use the wrong pronouns? And more positively, Catholic schools are seeing a resurgence of classical education. We talk about all of that with Andrea Pachoti Bear, legal analyst for EWTN News, who's also the director of the Conscience Project. But first, here's the news with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Matthew, and
3: good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday. February 1st, and it's the feast of St. Bridget of Ireland. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. President Biden says the U.S. is praying and actively working for peace for the people of Israel and Gaza. The president also said he and First Lady Jill Biden continue to pray for the families of the three U.S. service members killed in Jordan. On Friday, the president and First Lady will attend the dignified transfer of the service members' bodies. He finished by saying his prayer is that the country continues to believe its best days are ahead. Mark Zuckerberg is apologizing to parents whose children were harmed by Instagram. The Meta CEO made the apology directly to a group of parents Wednesday during a Senate hearing about online child exploitation. Zuckerberg told the parents that his company is working on efforts to make sure no one has to go through the things your families have had to suffer through. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis plans to send more personnel to Texas to assist with immigration issues at its border with Mexico. DeSantis announced he's sending about 1,000 Florida National Guard soldiers, as well as the first-ever deployment of Florida State Guard members. More than 90 officers from the Florida Highway Patrol, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, and Florida Department of Law Enforcement are already in Texas, assisting at the Mexico border. And a report says the U.S. is preparing to carry out a series of strikes in Iraq and Syria in response to the attacks in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members. CBS News reports the strikes will target Iranian facilities and personnel over several days. This comes as President Biden told reporters he has decided a course of action to retaliate. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw.
2: Well, as I just mentioned, uh, today was the National Prayer Breakfast here in Washington, D.C. It was attended by the leaders of the United States government, uh, across cultures, uh, across uh, various organizations, all with the goal of prayer. Uh, President Biden, as I also mentioned, uh, attended. Uh, he is uh, as he wrote and as he said he's engaged in work to bring hostages home amid conflicts he made an appeal for peace but he also said that the challenge of our times reminds us of our responsibility as a nation to help each other just and lasting peace deliver it abroad and here at home the uh, amazing grace was sung by andrea bocelli sorry i missed that Uh, during the breakfast uh, and president biden was seated next to speaker of the house mike johnson who to, to wipe his eye with a tissue in the middle of it. Uh, a lot of this reporting is being done by the Catholic News Agency, as always, and it is a joy to be joined here uh, on Crest in the Afternoon um, by Ken Oliver, who is the Editor-in-Chief of the Catholic News Agency, who uh, is following this and many other stories. So, Ken, great to be with you.
4: Great to be with you, Matthew, and with all our listeners today.
2: Yeah, I think this is the first time you have been on Crest in the Afternoon. That, That's right. Correct. Okay, so welcome. Welcome. So the national prayer breakfast, uh, I guess the question can be asked, uh, given the, the fractures in the United States, the levels of division, polarization, we obviously need to have more prayer, but is a prayer breakfast like this still relevant in your view?
4: It is. Matthew, let me tell you, just when you think everything's falling apart, to right. see this tradition continue to see the president, uh, we'll, we'll have a full report this afternoon, but you'll see images of President Biden in prayer with Speaker Johnson, with the minority leader of the House, and Andrea Bocelli was the star of the show. Uh, he and, tends to be, doesn't he? Oh, he, <laughs> was, he was, absolutely, and there was, this is, you know, going back to our tradition, if we can just maintain these efforts we have. And, and to hear the bipartisan congressional leadership uh, talk about our American tradition of of getting together in the spirit of Jesus to pray and to even President Biden referring to the importance of this. And so I think it was a very helpful time in this of crisis we're facing in the country and worldwide yeah. that we had this gathering today. And, and as we go into next week with our national A catholic prayer breakfast as well
2: exactly so next week we have also here in washington dc a a tradition that is very important to catholics not just in the nation's capital but across the country because i know many people fly in or they travel into dc to attend this what's the significance of this national catholic prayer breakfast compared to the national prayer breakfast
4: Obviously, the, the National Prayer Breakfast goes back way way back to the 1950s, the Eisenhower years, when we put, in God we trust, and we added some good things uh, regarding the importance of what we're facing in the fight against communism at the time, and, and socialism, and godless ideologies. So, this is a real bulwark. Uh, the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, I've experienced it firsthand, as you have, uh, in the last decade or so, right? Yes. And that's been a welcome addition to the obviously the leadership of the most powerful and influential uh, religious body in the in the country and the world single most right um so we're really looking forward to that next week but i think today it was good instead of to dive into some of the news that's more disturbing begin on a hopeful <laughs> note and prayerful note
2: yeah, uh, Helen Alvarez is going to be honored next week, right? Yes. So for people who may not be familiar with her achievements, who is she?
4: Helen Alvarez is really the star of the, uh, in terms of being a spokesperson and legal scholar for the pro-life movement, uh, affiliated with the USCCB for over two decades mm-hmm. um, and the Secretary for Pro-Life. So she has been so effective, and she's featured in the last uh, National Catholic Register edition, uh, full feature with with her you know, just that where we are as a country, um, uh, what we need to really double down on in terms of including uh, prayer and, and being wide awake in terms of how uphill we we face as a challenge uh, state by state this year.
2: Yeah, so you mentioned uh, the bad news, the hard news that we're all covering. As we look at an event like the prayer breakfast, uh, both the Catholic prayer breakfast and the one that was held today. And we look around the globe. Are we seeing sort of a retreat? Are we seeing religion in general being pushed out of the public square and in particular Christianity? And how can these prayer breakfasts actually have concrete results in solving some of these problems?
4: Well, we, we certainly hope so. And, and the, the fact is, we held simultaneously this week, Matthew, the, the International Religious Freedom Summit. Yes. And uh, that did as well receive bipartisan support. Of course, um, you know, we certainly can question some of the efforts, especially regarding Nigeria, of the current administration here in Washington, failing to include Nigeria among the country's most. Uh, problematic for christians and i
2: know that the cna the catholic news agency has been covering that very question uh... About we possible genocide in nigeria
4: this week we had the uh... uh bishop wilfred uh, wilfred anagbe of nigeria here in washington to talk about the genocide that he understands is going on he totally debunked this uh... narrative that it's due to climate change it's due to hatred of christianity among the muslim uh... um really a uh, terrorist uh, there, who are decimating, uh, as we saw, uh, you know, week by week uh, in recent weeks, uh, villages and hundreds of people.
2: So we're um, seeing the activities of Boko Haram, but also the Fulani herdsmen, is that right? The
4: Fulani herdsmen, uh, most of all, uh, and lately, and uh, roughly, you know, um, it's a real red, uh, I mean, red flag sound of sounding the alarms, mm-hmm. the bishop this week uh, talking about this, and we have coverage uh, from the day before yesterday on Catholic News Agency, uh, quoting the bishop's remarks at length. Um, and it's certainly uh, – uh, we have many allies, right, that are uh, pushing, um, but we need to do more uh, right. for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But it's not just uh, in Nigeria, as horrendous as that is. We're looking at crises in India. We're looking at uh, Nicaragua. And I know at the International Religious Freedom Summit uh, that we had attendees from Nicaragua. Is that right?
4: Yes. Nicaragua has been really much more prominent, uh, and we've had some. Uh, successes right the holy father's involvement in getting the bishop uh, alvarez and others out uh, in the last month um, and getting them to safety in rome Uh, we had a a clergyman who was anonymous uh catholic priest uh speak at the national i mean the international religious freedom summit this week about the situation in nicaragua and um i think there's a lot More to be done, but I think some progress is being made there.
2: Now, I know in our reporting, we we talked about the fact that the Nicaraguan priest who testified, his identity was hidden and his voice was altered um, for safety reasons. Now, how serious does the situation have to be that we have to do this for a witness? And how serious also is the threat then to this priest's family and friends back in Nicaragua?
4: Absolutely even in Rome this week our correspondent uh, Courtney Rogan was saying uh, she uh, she and other colleagues spoke with one of the exiled priests in Rome and he is not uh, does not feel safe to mention uh, his name publicly and and other details uh, we know that at least 46 members of our catholic clergy uh, have been in custody last year in Nicaragua Uh, including the two bishops, four seminarians. Um, So it's a very, very dangerous situation. Uh, And actually, there's been more negative developments as well in the last week, not just the release of Valvarez. So Mm. it's still very hot.
2: So in uh, Nicaragua, we're looking at... uh I have to smile because you referenced uh, going all the way back to the 1950s uh at the prayer breakfast when it was established and everything else uh, that uh, here we were in a struggle with uh, communism socialism and atheism. Boys, some things just don't change, do they? I mean, we have in the Nicaragua regime of Daniel Ortega a, a group that started as the Sandinistas uh as a communist socialist atheist regime and they're back in power doing this, but this is uh, something that we're also seeing now culturally here in the United States, isn't it?
4: It really makes you somewhat nostalgic for the 1990s, (laughs) Matthew, when we had uh, Victoria Chamorro uh, come into power and others. Um, There has been at the same time in the region, you've had some uh, victories uh, by the center and right, uh, most notably in Argentina. So so yes, in this huge struggle, uh, which is far from over, uh, we're we're seeing you know both light and darkness um, at the same time.
2: Yeah, and in India, we have to make reference to the problems that we're we're facing there uh, in terms of Christians.
4: Yes, uh, we we have a report just today um, on that subject of, of India. The bishops conference uh, we're meeting uh, 180 Indian bishops, and the Apostolic Nuncio talking about the uh, situation there. I didn't fully read the story, Matthew. Did, uh, did anything strike uh, you in particular?
2: Yeah, I thought that the, the fact that uh, we're having this conversation uh, is strikeful. It, it, It's very helpful, I think. Uh, I thought especially the, the comments from uh, the Nuncio, uh, Archbishop Leopoldo Gerelli, uh, who quoted and, and brought to mind St. John Bosco, and he talked about the commitment to missions, and the fact that as a church, this is something that we have to do. But also, he made note of the, the fact that the church can play such a crucial role in shaping the moral character of a society. And in this case, the, the church's response to the socio-political situation in India, I mean, it, it, the, the safeguarding of human dignity. And, and we can even tie this, can't we, to uh, the recent reports I know that, that we've covered on sex selection abortions as, as an epidemic in India.
4: Absolutely. Yes, and, and one good development we had uh, last week was in Pakistan, where they finally ended the compulsory teaching of the Muslim faith to everybody, and now non-Muslims can be taught tracks according to their parents' religion. So we, we, we did highlight that uh, last week on a positive note. But, yeah, India is uh, really a, a challenging situation.
2: So from your standpoint as uh, editor-in-chief, uh, for the Catholic News Agency. What are some of your priorities as we look ahead into this new year?
4: Well, we're in ele- election year and certainly the the fate of abortion regulation in the various states. We have um, very proactive pro-life uh, legislators in Missouri and Mississippi trying to change uh, the threshold to make it a little more difficult to do these overnight, uh, expansive changes to abortion law, as we saw in Ohio. Yeah. Um, so, Hopefully that will be successful, um, and we will be right on top of that uh, state by state. Uh, just yesterday, the Maryland bishops were coming out against a similar effort in Maryland, um, and that's, that's top of mind. We're expanding, our um, obviously, our political coverage as well this year uh, here in the U.S. and, yeah. and around the world.
2: Yeah, so a lot to cover, including things like the the uh, FACE Act. We've had some convictions just uh, this week uh, on those who are being considered in violation of the FACE Act a pro-life activist. So a lot to cover, and I, I'm very glad to, that you're editor-in-chief of the Catholic News Agency for us, and I look forward to having you back on the show.
4: Thank you. So will. Thank you.
2: Well, Ken Oliver, uh, Editor-in-Chief of the Catholic News Agency. A lot more to discuss, in fact, about religious liberty, both here and abroad, with Andrea picciotti Bear. This is Cresta in the afternoon.
5: 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope.
6: The Third Commandment, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. You know, of all the commandments, it might seem that we would get this one right. After all, it commands us to rest one day. But so often, we're off to our own pursuits. God asks us to take one day to stop, reflect, rejoice, spend time with Him and with our family. But so often, we're running everywhere else. It's also a day for worship. The book of Leviticus says, Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest and holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is the Sabbath of the Lord. And the book of Hebrews says that we should not neglect to meet together as is a habit of some. And so again, we're asked by God to spend time reflecting and worshiping and likewise spend time with our family. The third commandment, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day.
5: For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. What does the Ninth Commandment forbid? The Catholic Catechism says the Ninth Commandment warns against carnal concupiscence, sins against the flesh. What is concupiscence? It is the consequence of original sin. Though baptism purifies the soul of all sin, it does not remove our tendency toward sin, In this rebellion of the flesh against the spirit, as defined by St. Paul, we must develop purity of heart, the desire always to do the will of God, especially in the area of charity and chastity. Purity requires modesty. Modesty protects the intimate center of a person. It refuses to unveil what should be hidden. Modesty guides how you look at others and behave toward them. It should dictate one's choice of clothing. So, as not to exploit or tempt another. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
7: The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. And we need to pray for all our world leaders and all those who are in such danger. See, in a day and age where people are getting further away from God. You get further away from goodness. Only God is good. you remember what our Lord said one day? Why do you call me good? He said, only God is good. Only God.
3: EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic.
7: Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com.
1: Support for this Ave Maria Radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life, in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers, out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization.
2: You're listening to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, there are obscure cases that sometimes uh, appear before the Supreme Court uh, here in the United States. And, and one of them, however, has some potentially significant ramifications for religious liberty. I'm talking specifically about a case called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimundo and Relentless versus Department of Commerce. The cases involve, and also very obscure thing called the Magnuson-Stevens Act a law governing fishery management in federal waters which authorizes the National Marine Fisheries Service bear with me i'm going somewhere with this under narrow circumstances to require fishing vessels to carry and pay federal observers who enforce agency regulations what does this have to do with the religious liberty it's a fair question and the answer is a mouthful of a term called the doctrine of chevron deference It's a principle that directs courts to defer to federal agencies' interpretation of the laws that they administer when the text is silent or ambiguous. This could have pretty significant ramifications as it relates to the court's power to interpret the law and Congress's power to legislate as well as the balance of power among all of the branches. There's a lot to talk about this. and uh, on top of this, we have a lot of stories of religious liberty here in the United States uh, that we need to cover. And, of course, to talk about religious liberty and the law, we turn always to Andrea picciotti Bear, legal analyst for EWTN News. She also directs The Conscience Project and is a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America. You can follow her on Twitter, or X now, at Bear Picciotti, and visit conscienceproject.org. Andrea, thank you for joining me.
7: Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for having me on. It's always great to join you and talk about these very, very interesting issues.
2: Well, they are. Uh, They're more interesting than people think when they first see a name such as uh, the 1984 Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council and uh, the Loper-Bright case in front of the Supreme Court. And yet, these are the types of cases that we don't seem to realize that can have a direct bearing on our daily lives, don't they?
7: Absolutely. And I think it's, it's probably important to think about, as you mentioned in your description of all of this, the balance of powers between the three different branches of government. And the pickle that we're in, and why the Supreme Court and their review of this issue is so important, is it seems like we're out of balance. Um, and it's finding its way in, in the situations where Congress will enact a law. Maybe there's some ambiguity in how that law plays out, and the executive branch, the administrative branch, fills in the gaps. And the problem is it, it oftentimes takes liberties in filling in the gaps, and the cases that you mentioned before involving the Magnus Stevens Act dealing with fisheries are, are such cases like that. It's where there's a law that Congress passed, it um, authorizes the National Marine Fisheries Service to require fishing vessels to have observers, um, but it doesn't say anything about who's going to pay for those observers, and these small fishing boats um, have pushed back and said, hey, we should not have to cover the cost of monitors as the agencies are, are requiring us to do. Um, And we don't want to defer to the agency passing that burden on to us um, in their interpretation of the law. So the long and short of this is um, it's basically putting some hold on the overreach of the administrative state and saying to Congress, if you're going to pass a law, you need to be detailed about it. And to the executive branch, you really can't fill in gaps and, and, in a way that's for Congress to do. And most importantly, that the Supreme Court will be telling the lower courts that their job is n- not to allow the executive branch that leeway that they've been taking um, for, since the 1980s. Um, how does this relate to religious freedom? Well, we probably all remember the Little Sisters of the Poor. And that's a perfect example of where Congress passed the Affordable Care Act and the administrative agencies in charge of implementing it came up with things like the contraceptive mandate. That's nowhere in the Affordable Care Act. And and that tends to trample upon, in general, all freedoms, but in particular, religious freedom.
2: Yeah, and, and to that, so the, the Chevron uh, deference, as it's called, um, has been subject to some controversy, I know, beyond, obviously, that the fisheries and even the contraceptive mandate. is it a, It's a bigger constitutional question now, isn't it?
7: It really is, uh, Matthew. And, and what's really interesting and I think important to note is the Supreme Court in recent years hasn't even looked to this notion of deferring to the administrative agency in charge of implementing and instead just looks at the law and says, is this law clear on this issue or not? Um, And so the problem really has become that the Chevron deference continues to confuse the lower courts. Some courts really work at it to try to figure out what a law means, and others give too much deference to the agency in charge. I think it was interesting, I listened to the three and a half hour long oral (laughs) argument um, held by the Supreme Court, and Paul Clement, who is a former Solicitor General, was representing one of the fishing boats, relentless. And he was saying this just puts the thumb on the the, the scales in favor of the government um, against private citizens or private groups like these fishermen. And so we really want to make sure that, that there's justice when there are controversies that get to the courts as well. So I think it's, um, it's, it's very interesting, not just for lawyers, but for all Americans to think about the role of the Supreme Court in hopefully correcting course.
2: But this was assumed to be a good idea at one point, wasn't it?
7: You know, it's very interesting that you said it. Sometimes we, <laughs> the Supreme Court in, uh, comes up with these workable rules is to try to figure out how to administer justice. And and the author of the Chevron case was um, Justice John Paul Stevens. He tried. He made a, what he thought would be a workable rule, right? We've got experts that are in charge of these agencies. They know kind of the details, how laws come and play out in practice, and as as we advance in society that we want to make sure that it works well. The problem is he didn't really appreciate the growth of the administrative state, and in, since 1984, the administrative state in the United States has just really it, it grown beyond um, anyone's uh, understanding. And and that um, allows for the Supreme Court to just say, we, we got it wrong. Um, before his passing, Justice Antonin Scalia, who at the time Chevron came down, said he agreed with it, as the years passed, he realized... No, well, this really wasn't a great idea after all.
2: Yeah, I was um, going to and, ask you about that because I remembered he did have a, a change of heart about this as, as he saw what had been unleashed.
7: Yes. No, and that's a really important thing to, to be flexible and understanding. I think um, the, the court is currently comprised and a majority of the court's conservative majority are what's known as originalists or textualists. And their their perspective on the judiciary is, you know, our role is to look at what either the Constitution says or in the case of of laws that have been passed by Congress, what the law says. And our role isn't to go beyond that. A textualist understanding of um, the role of a judge doesn't like Chevron deference at all, because it, it basically defers to an agency what is the proper responsibility of a court. Or it's something so unclear, the responsibility of Congress to fix it.
2: So what's the response to those who say, well, hold on a second, because we've been hearing for years that unelected judges or appointed judges, people who are never forced to stand before the people, are creating laws, they're weighing in on laws. How is this any better?
7: Well, first off, I don't think judges that are consider themselves originalists or textualists are creating laws, right? Right. They're not creating rights out of the Constitution or expanding what the law is is supposed to cover as it's written. Um, And that's where, when there is a Supreme Court decision that that is not what the people want, then Congress can pass a new law um, or can clarify. You know, if if the Supreme Court interprets or any lower court interprets a law that's at odds with Congress's um, desire that that law would be be passed, that's where our democratic system kind of really works beautifully. Mm -hmm. It can clarify things. And there have been cases where the Supreme Court has said, hey, you know, Congress, you're not clear on this, and Congress has gone and amended laws. So I think that um, it is is very important um, getting rid of Chevron deference puts the courts in the proper role that they have to rule based on what the law says. Um, And it asks a lot of our lawmakers, and at the same time, like I said before, it's really stopping the continued growth of the administrative state into issues that nobody was thinking about or nobody voted for.
2: As you are always very prudent and sage in pointing out, it's very difficult to know exactly how the justices on on SCOTUS are going to vote on anything what's your sense in this because uh, I know you've written on this topic and it did seem that uh, certainly justices Kagan Sotomayor and Ketanji Brown Jackson were very supportive of keeping Chevron others were not
7: yeah it's interesting I'm not sure if those three more left leaning justices would be supportive If there was a different administration, (laughs) I think that they're supportive of it Um, during the Biden administration. And that was one of the things that Justice Brett Kavanaugh pointed out. You know, everyone loves Chevron deference when when the people that they like are in power um but when four years later they don't like chevron deference, um and so i think that uh, justice kavanaugh and justice gorsuch were very very vocal during oral argument um uh, against chevron deference um in the past justice samuel alito and clarence thomas have also expressed their concerns the bigger issue will be so what do we do now is it a, a specific overruling of the Chevron case is it looking at a modification or there is always the possibility that the court will look at this controversy before them and say that that you never even get to the issue of deferring to the agency because the law is clear and and it doesn't authorize agency to pass pass the cost on and that was something that Chief Justice John Roberts was pressing um Paul Clement, that that advocate that I mentioned before on, you know, is there really ambiguity in this? Isn't it clear that that, that the burden for monitoring shouldn't be passed on to the fishermen? So, it will be very interesting, I do think, that um, the court is looking at Chevron, and it's going to be a really important move forward for the court in clarifying the jurisprudence.
2: Yeah. Well, hold that thought. We have a lot more to talk about, including certain states that are denying kids adoptions if parents use the wrong pronouns. This is Cresta in the Afternoon, a lot more with Andrea picciotti Bear after the break.
3: Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life, buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org.
0: Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic Law School in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information,
8: visit AveMariaLaw.edu.
6: Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you
0: the heart of the interior life with elizabeth jangle
9: in the sixth rule of saint ignatius of Loyola's 14 rules for the discernment of spirits he instructs us to extend ourselves in some suitable way of doing penance to assist us in changing ourselves and our response to the experience of spiritual desolation father timothy galgar writes the penance is suitable when it counters the precise tendency to flight we feel in the spiritual desolation and permits us to act against the specific form of desolation we are undergoing. St. Ignatius is directing us to consider a suitable penance that will be an action that counters the very actions the desolation is pushing one towards. For example, if the lies of the enemy during spiritual desolation make a person feel far from God, a suitable way of doing penance could be an intentional turning to God in prayer and with trust. What suitable form of penance might you practice in spiritual desolation?
0: For more information, visit avimariaradio.net.
9: Dr.
10: Ray Garendi. What is criticism exactly? If you pay close attention, do you notice what most criticism is? Oh, it's not because you're doing something wrong or hurtful, something that needs corrected. Most criticism is, you're not doing it the way I would do it. Or you're not doing it the way... I want you to do it. That's what most criticism is. And you have to get good at sorting that out. Otherwise, you're gonna get real upset when anyone says anything about what you are doing. Now, of course, you could turn this on yourself. Do you do that? Is most of your criticism a message to someone else that says, you're not doing it the way I would do it? Well save your criticism for things that are really wrong.
2: Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I am not Al Cresta. I am, however, Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today. And I'm continuing my conversation with... Uh, legal analyst uh, for EWTN and EWTN News, uh, who's also the director of the Conscience Project and a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America, I'm talking about Andrea Pachotti Bear, who I'm also honored to say is a friend. We were just talking, uh, Andrea, about uh, the chevron deference and uh, the administrative state, and if there's one possible example of um, an administrative state, or hyper-regulation, or however one wants to describe an intrusive government, it strikes me that uh, the, the movement we've seen in just the last few years on gender ideology uh, strikes me as uh, a real potential avenue for hyperregulation regulation and real threats to religious liberty. Would you agree with that?
7: Wholeheartedly. Matthew, wholeheartedly. Um, it's It's very interesting how this ideology has really kind of taken hold in um, in a federal government, in its internal operations, mandating employees, federal employees, to buy into the ideology without exception. And it's also manifested itself in executive orders uh, that President Biden has issued, as well as implementation of those executive orders into the inner workings of agencies such as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and some proposed guidance that they've issued, as well as, and most disturbingly, um, proposed rules and regulations being issued by the Department of Health and Human Services involving who I think are some of our most vulnerable, and that's children in foster care settings.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you had a a, a piece in, I think it's The Federalist, uh, and I would send everyone to TheFederalist.com to read this, and the title of it is Blue States Deny Kids Adoption If Parents Use Wrong Pronouns. And you have in here the story, I just want to briefly summarize this, uh, relating to foster families uh, and their experiences. One uh, has to do with uh, adoptive parents of faith, that they've shared their own powerful stories. And in a friend of the court brief in support of Jessica. And the, the panel should pay especially close attention, you write, to the experience of Nancy Harmon, who has fostered about 50 children with her husband, Jay. And you cite a December 2021 situation in which the Harmons took in three sisters, age 9, 10, and 11, and the oldest girl had no sooner started unpacking her clothes before she announced My pronouns are they, them, I'm bisexual, emo, gothic, pagan, witch. And then you write, she looked at Nancy and asked, will you adopt me? And I'll, I'll, everyone should read this uh, to, to leave everyone in suspense, but I think this is a, a perfect example of what families of faith are facing at this point, aren't they?
7: Yeah, no, there's an incredible contagion um, that's afflicting all of our young people in in this country, and, and gender ideology has really confused a lot of young people to doubt their biological reality children that are facing insecurity in their their families of origin either because of abuse or neglect have been afflicted to even a greater extent Um, and so there's lots of young children either because of mistreatment neglect or abuse in the home that um, are mimicking or or, Mirroring this idea of challenging their own biological reality, and the case of of the Harmon family, it's quite amazing. Um, they, Nancy Harmon, was a foster child herself, and um, she and her husband opened their home up to a number of children, in addition to their biological children. And the the most recent was three sisters, as you mentioned before, and the oldest sister. Um, These three sisters were in an incredibly abusive and and neglected um, home with their biological parents. They were taken out of of that care and placed with the Harmons, and the oldest one is struggling with, to this day, with some confusion about her sexual identity. Um, The family just loved these kids. They ended up... um, Caring for them, getting all the supports, mental health, physical care, education, that they had not received any education um, beginning during the pandemic. And um, when they were asked if they would adopt, they preyed upon it and they agreed to. And they were told that they weren't considered a fit family because Nancy and her husband weren't willing to affirm or, or so thought state officials. Um, the the gender identity of the eldest child mind you that child was 11 at the time Um, since then uh, through the the good um, advice of the children's therapist and just kind of the prayerfulness of the, the Harmon family they were able to adopt the children and they're continuing to support all three girls keeping them together which is really important for their good and helping them to just know that they're loved. Um, I think that it's an incredible game-changer of having a safe and loving home, especially when you've, you've really suffered abuse and neglect in your lives.
2: But,
0: playing but they're this, not alone.
7: <laughs> they're I not was alone.
2: going to say, yeah, exactly. Playing this out on a, on a much broader scale, we're, we're seeing this in all kinds of different situations now.
7: Absolutely. So I got to know the Harmon family because they were serving as friends of the court in a brief that I had written um, and submitted to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals It's a federal court. So this is an amicus brief, states. right? <laughs> amicus brief. Yes. And um, they're in support of a mother, an Oregon mother, um, Jessica Bates. And Jessica, she's widowed. Her husband died in a tragic car accident. She has five biological children. And a very prayerful woman decided that it would be God was asking her to open up her home to two um, young children, sibling pair. She applied with the state of Oregon to adopt, and she was uncomfortable with the training that she received, um, saying that she had to be willing to take children to gay pride events, um, allow them to dress in ways that were at odds with their biological sex. And these are hypothetical children. She's, you know, and she's thinking of um, adopting children that are under the age of 10. And she said, look, that's at odds with my Christian belief of the nature of the human person. And um, I just can't do that. Um, She was told she would be ineligible to adopt. And she went to federal court. She lost in the lower court. And she's before the court of appeals saying that the demands that the state of Oregon are placing on her violate her First Amendment rights to free speech, because they're asking her to say things that she doesn't believe in, um, and they violate her free exercise rights, the exercise of religion, because they are asking her to do things that are at odds with her Christian formation. Um, and Some of those things include using pronouns for a child that are inconsistent with a child's biological reality.
2: Now we have just been talking about Chevron and the administrative state. Uh, is it possible or are we already seeing, uh, for example, the mandating of pronoun usage and other things uh, by government
7: agencies? You know I mentioned earlier before, yes we are. We're seeing it at state and local levels but we're also seeing it at the federal level with the Biden administration. Um, earlier I referenced the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission has come up with proposed guidance for businesses that are covered by Title VII, and that's the federal law related to employment discrimination, saying that refusal to use preferred pronouns qualifies as workplace harassment based on sex. We're also seeing in the foster care context where the Department of Health and Human Services has proposed regulations um basically similar to what Oregon is asking, mm-hmm. um, which say that you need to be gender affirming, including using preferred pronouns, allowing for um, presenting uh, based on, on someone's gender identity, even if it's at odds with biological reality. Now, the HHS allows for some religious-based exemptions, Um but basically limits the ability of people of faith to care for children who claim an LGBTQ identity and we've seen that people of faith are some of our nation's best and most diligent and kind of most trusted foster mm-hmm. care and adoption parents to exclude their ability to serve serve youth children based on gender ideology just seems to be um, only asking for adding more injury to children who have already suffered the unthinkable injury of not being cared for from their homes.
2: So I'm going to guess uh, that it's only a matter of time before we have many more suits working their way through uh, the, the courts, probably all the way up to the Supreme Court. Would that be a fair prognostication?
7: You know, I think it will. I'm hoping that the Ninth Circuit, which unfortunately is notoriously very left-leaning, liberal-leaning, will see Jessica Bates' case as being um, a very important civil rights case, free speech, freedom of religion. Um, If they don't, I think that Jessica's lawyers from the Alliance Defending Freedom are prepared to bring her case to the Supreme Court. um, And looking at how the court has dealt with these two important freedoms. I think that Jessica should be victorious in the end. Um, but the issue, and this is something that my the amicus families that that contributed to my brief mentioned, lawsuits take time and yeah. children are waiting for solutions. And to have the doors of loving homes closed while these cases make their way through our courts is, is just a shame and and a grave injustice to these kids
2: yeah well while I have you I want to turn to a slightly more happy topic and that is a commentary that you recently wrote for the National Catholic Register Catholic schools see resurgence of classical education and it's a robust renewal of Catholic education in our country is underway what is that about
7: so yes, I'd love to end on a good note. Thank you so
9: much!
2: <laughs> <laughs> I the least we can do.
7: <laughs> you know, and this is, I, I guess they go hand in hand, right? I mean, in, in the face of profound darkness, more light is needed. And we see that um, our Catholic schools have always been beacons of light, um, but we're seeing a resurgence, a renewal of Catholic education, and in part, as more and more Catholic schools are turning to classical education to be able to offer their students and their students' families a better understanding of the faith and a better encounter, a more rich encounter, with what is good, true, and beautiful.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask, so just a quick definition, if you can, of classical education.
7: You know, that's a really great question, and I think um, I won't give it for myself. I will refer to a school in very close to where I grew up, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, it was a school that had been kind of a languishing parochial school, um, and then it it was taken up and converted into a Catholic uh, classical school by none other than um, Father Sirico, who used to run up um, the Acton Institute, and um, basically, the the components of a, ca- a classical education almost are like regular education, right? There's nothing new. Um, it's looking at the richness of of tradition and um, the beauty of of literature and the arts. But I'm going to quote from you the um, definition from Sacred Heart Academy in Grand Rapids, and they say, "quote classical education." begins with an authentic view of the human person as created in the image of God and created to share in His divine life. This understanding of the human person leads to a formation which is suited to the development of a child toward personal sanctification and full participation in a distinctly Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian culture. Classical education is most naturally and completely done in a Catholic school, it can be sustained and perfected by the sacramental life of the Church. Isn't that beautiful?
2: (laughs) Well, it raises a question, why wouldn't you want to have this?
7: Exactly! Well, and and this is where um, I think all of us were drawn to um, thinking about education for the ends that it can provide as far as, you know, job security or higher education, and not thinking about education as forming the person forming the person in their character, and preparing the person um, to grow closer in their relationship with God. Classical education is an encounter, again, with what I was saying, what is beautiful. And we know that God creates what is beautiful. So it's the perfect uh, connection between our faith and formation.
2: And a perfect way to end our conversation. I'm sorry, it has to be always so short. Uh, Andrea Pachotti bear thank you so much.
7: Thanks, Matthew.
2: When we come back, a few closing thoughts on this hour. This is Cresta in the afternoon.
11: It's
12: time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. If you've ever bought a plant at a garden center, you know most flowers and vegetables require at least six hours a day of direct sun. Sure, you can plant them in a shady spot without killing them, but it's not like they're going to thrive if you do. Well, researchers say that to really thrive, most families need 10 to 15 hours of working, playing, talking, and praying together every week. That's why family time is the foundation of the liturgy of domestic church life. If your family isn't getting enough time to connect, then it might be time to rearrange your schedule. You don't need to cancel everything that you're doing, but start scheduling regular appointments for family meals, prayer, and recreation a few months out, gradually building up to a healthier lifestyle. To learn more about living the liturgy of domestic church life, check out our books Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me family. To discover more
6: ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com.
0: The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jangle.
9: St. Ignatius of Loyola introduces the Sixth Rule of his Fourteen Rules for the Discernment of Spirits, calling to mind the Directive of the Fifth Rule. In the fifth rule, St. Ignatius directs us not to change our spiritual decisions or proposals when we are in a time of spiritual desolation. The sixth rule states, although in desolation we should not change our first proposals, it is very advantageous to change ourselves intensely against the desolation itself. The call in the sixth rule is to change ourselves, to change ourselves intensely against the spiritual desolation. We're not called to passively endure spiritual desolation. For God's call in a time of spiritual desolation is always to resist and fight against the desolation with strength, trust, and determination. How will you change yourself against the desolation?
0: For more information, visit avimariaradio.net.
2: Well, my thanks uh, to all of my guests this hour, Andre Pachotti Bear, analyst of uh, EWTN News for Legal Issues, and a great friend, and also director of the Conscience Project, and also Ken Oliver, editor-in-chief of the Catholic News Agency. Fascinating stories that we've been covering, but I wanted to, to close with a little bit more on the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, uh, which is coming up next week. Uh, if you can attend, it's terrific. I know that the tickets tend to sell out very quickly, but Helen Alvarez, a brilliant mind, is going to be honored at the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast next week. My thanks to everyone here at the Afternoon for making this all so easy, and at least for me, a lot of fun. Stay tuned. We have another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon coming up, including the Saints of February. Please stick around.
1: From the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: And a very good afternoon indeed uh, to Cresta in the afternoon. Very welcome to be here. I am not Al Cresta. I am, however, Matthew Bunsen, filling in for Al today. As I always say, it's a privilege uh, to fill in for Al. It's a, a joy to work with his team, but it's also a joy to spend some time with you. For those who may not be familiar with me, I am a vice president and editorial director of EWTN News. Uh, I write books on the side from time to time, and also the. Uh, creator, I suppose is a good word, uh, for the documentary series for EWTN on the Doctors of the Church. Doctors uh, of the Church are, by necessity, uh, saints. They have left a great body of teachings, but uh, the the first requirement that's often discussed uh, about becoming a Doctor of the Church is you have to be a saint. The calendar for any Catholic uh, who follows such things, as we all should, is filled with many, many saints. It is a beautiful part of the life of the church, and February is no exception. So what we thought we would do for a good part of this hour is have a conversation about the saints of February. What is it about saints uh, that uh, we should look at? Well, Pope Benedict XVI said it so wonderfully back in 2006. He said that the church certainly does not lack contentious or even rebellious children, but it is in the saints that she recognizes her characteristic features and precisely in them savors her deepest joy. It is that joy that we want to talk about because uh, February, though a sh- relatively short month, has some truly fascinating and important saints for us to get to know a little better and that's what we're going to do today we're going to spend that time today uh, not the whole hour but uh, a good chunk of it uh, with chris mcgregor uh, chris mcgregor is a great friend of mine but she's also founder of discerning hearts where she and her husband host and produce radio programs and podcasts on the spiritual life you can find her at discerninghearts.com Just a a few of the saints that uh, I'm looking forward to talking with Chris about to help all of us get to know better. St. Blaise, of course, St. Agatha, St. Josephine Bakita, the name Lucky, St. Scholastica, St. Cyril and Methodius, and one of my particular favorites, two actually, two doctors of the church. One is St. Peter Damien, bishop and doctor of the church, and St. Gregory of Narek, abbot and doctor of the church from Armenia, who's one of the most recent uh, choices to become a doctor of the church by Pope Francis. So a lot to learn in this hour. Also, uh, a conversation about EWTN News. I'm going to be joined by our president at EWTN News, our president and COO, Monse Alvarado, uh, talking about uh, the future of news, EWTN News' organization, who are we, what are our principles. So we're going to talk especially, though, about saints in this hour. But first, here's the news.
3: Thank you, Matthew, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria radio news for Thursday, February 1st, and it's the Feast of St. Bridget of Ireland. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. President Biden says the U.S. is praying and actively working for peace for the people of Israel and Gaza. The president also said he and First Lady Jill Biden continue to pray for the families of the three U.S. service members killed in Jordan. On Friday, the president and First Lady will attend the dignified transfer of the service members' bodies. He finished by saying his prayer is that the country continues to believe its best days are ahead. Mark Zuckerberg is apologizing to parents whose children were harmed by Instagram. The Meta CEO made the apology directly to a group of parents Wednesday during a Senate hearing about online child exploitation. Zuckerberg told the parents that his company is working on efforts to make sure no one has to go through the things your families have had to suffer through. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis plans to send more personnel to Texas to assist with immigration issues at its border with Mexico. DeSantis announced he's sending about 1,000 Florida National Guard soldiers, as well as the first-ever deployment of Florida State Guard members. More than 90 officers from the Florida Highway Patrol, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, and Florida Department of Law Enforcement are already in Texas, assisting at the Mexico border. And a report says the U.S. is preparing to carry out a series of strikes in Iraq and Syria in response to the attacks in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members. CBS News reports the strikes will target Iranian facilities and personnel over several days. This comes as President Biden told reporters he has decided a course of action to retaliate. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw.
2: Well, as I mentioned, uh, every month in the life of the Church uh, has a great cornucopia of saints and holiness. I go back to something that uh, Pope Benedict XVI said uh, on that remarkable day in the Solemnity of All Saints in 2006. He said, looking at the shining example of the saints to reawaken within us the great longing to be like them, happy to live near God in his light in the great family of God's friends, being a saint means living close to God, to live in his family, and this is a vocation of us all, vigorously reaffirmed by the Second Vatican Council and solemnly proposed, he said today for our attention. Well, necessarily be solemnly proposing, but I'm offering uh, a little look at uh, some of the great saints of February this is a month also that of course is dedicated to the holy family that's a special devotion that uh... offers the holy family of jesus mary and joseph as the model of virtue for all christian households It dates all the way back to the 17th century this is a month also that includes the presentation of the lord it uh... includes as uh, well of course valentine's day which as we all know this year also happens to fall on the same day as ash wednesday so like i said it's a very short month But there's a lot to talk about especially when it comes to the Saints and I could think of no one better to discuss the Saints than Chris McGregor founder of Discerning Hearts uh, with her husband and radio they both host and produce radio programs and podcasts on the spiritual life and it is a privilege to be occupy a small corner of Discerning Hearts but it's even more of a, a pleasure to talk with Chris welcome
11: Well, Matthew, you're more than just a small corner, and you also have a huge section of our hearts as well. So it's just a delight to be with you today.
2: Well, this is an idea of, we could do this for every month, obviously. Uh, The -hmm. whole year is filled with saints. But uh, I was struck when I was just looking at the calendar of this month, how varied the list is, how interesting the list is, and here we are we've just for many people you've just recovered from january because of the weather and february then is is a way to be a little refreshed and one of the ways we can do that is with the saints so first what for you draws you most to the lives of the saints
11: they are such a cross-section of individuals who responded in their various situations right where they were at to this particular call to holiness and they all have such varied backgrounds and, and you know it's so beautiful matthews they're sitting there and they're cheering for each and every one of us and i i think this is what's so great about reflecting on their lives because not only do they teach us we learn about them but because of them we learn more about god and he draws us near so it's a, it's a great day, especially on this day, February first, as you said. I'm I i do not know about you, but I'm done with January. I don't that's in the rearview mirror. And
9: well,
2: as you know, a, I love winter, so I may be the wrong one to ask, but I know people out there um, are horrified at the prospect.
11: I'm just done. Well, we had a, we got bombed, a snow bombed here in the Midwest, and I'm ready for spring. Which, if I go over to Ireland, do you know that today is February 1st, is the traditional first day of spring in Ireland? Yes. And that's why our first saint, of course, St. Bridget of Ireland, or also known as Bridget of Kildare, why it's very significant because she's a figure of fertility and renewal. So getting to know Bridget would be very helpful for folks.
2: Yeah, and, and in this case, uh, a figure of hope that the seasons actually do change. Yes. Yes, please. So, so now if we have, have, have to, to add a
11: Birmingham, Alabama, then it's absolutely <laughs> spectacular all the time.
2: Or Washington, yeah. D.C., which has its fair share of snow. At least this, yeah, this yeah, January. Yeah, but let, let's have a qualifier at the start that um, in the limited time that we have, we're not going to be able to cover every saint of February. So if you have a favorite saint and somehow we don't get to them, please don't be offended. Uh, this is a, a beautiful sampling, but we can't possibly talk about every saint of February. But let's start with Bridget.
11: We've got yeah, let, we've got a cross-section. We have abbesses. We have a doctors of the church. We have uh, little God's little ones. Who actually up in heaven are giant, bright blowtorches of light. And, you know, St. Bridget of Ireland, she's an important one because she is revered for her generosity, her gift of healing, and her dedication to the poor and the sick. Uh, she's associated with many miracles and, and holy wells uh, throughout Ireland, and they have a certain healing properties that people seem to associate with her. But, you know, she was born in the mid fifth century. So the uh, exact details and facts of her life are kind of mixed with some legends, as you're aware of, especially of those saints of that era. Man. Mm-hmm. And there's some debate over her birth parents, but it's widely believed that her mother, uh, her name was Broca, a slave, eventually baptized by the one and only St. Patrick. And
2: well, You knew father, his name would have to come up at some point in this conversation. I I do. <laughs> so, <laughs>
11: That was my very bad imitation, Maureen O'Hara. But anyway, um, her father was a chieftain and, and considered a pagan, someone who was not baptized, right? And for up because she was a slave, she, uh, when Bridget was born, she was born into slavery. And so she became a follower of Christianity, primarily inspired by, again, the great teaching, the preaching of St. Patrick. And there are a lot of stories of her formative years. It's not real clear what's legend, what's back, but we do know that eventually her father would grant her her freedom. And when that happened, some of the spectacular things happened. She is best known for founding the monastery of Kildare, which is, means the Church of the, of the Oak on the site of an older pagan shrine, which is not unusual for many churches, especially in Western Europe, and uh, became a center of religion and learning, and reputedly was one of the first monasteries to have a female abbey.
5: Mm-hmm.
11: So the monastery is very unique. It's uh, and she was the abbess.
2: It's similar to, I, I always think when we ponder abbesses, of Hildegard of Bingen. You're something of an expert on that, but isn't it interesting how, while we don't know all of the details. But the the one thing that is so consistent are, are we have these pious legends, obviously, but Mm -hmm. you can see the arc of their influence in their lives, speaking down the centuries. Mm -hmm. So while the details may be somewhat unclear, obviously, this is a very long time ago in a very complicated situation in Ireland at the time in the the fifth century. But it's so clear what her legacy was.
11: Mm. And? her presence in the lives, the spiritual lives of people today. Mm-hmm. I think, Matthew, that's why they remain. If it were just you know a fanciful story and it didn't really mean very much, uh, ultimately through almost 1,500 years, they kind of get lost to time. But when in this communion of saints, their very real active participation in the spiritual life of uh, followers, Christians, um, as members of that great cloud of witnesses, we feel them today. They they become a part of our, they become a real part of our lives and of our spiritual families. So I think that's why their uh, presence, I keep saying that, mm-hmm. by virtue of the grace of the Holy Spirit, they, they remain with us and stay with us.
2: Well, and that was one of the points that um, I was trying to make in, in quoting Pope Benedict XVI, where he talks about this mm-hmm. friendship often, of uh, the friendship that we have to have with saints, that saints are this presence in our lives. So but, but another person who has echoed down the centuries for, for one detail in particular is St. Blaise.
11: Oh, yes. Now, everybody, you have to get to church, what is it, Saturday? going to be the Feast of St. Blaise, and that's the day when we traditionally have our throats blessed but many people don't even know who Saint place was but he was a bishop and a martyr a great witness for the faith of the early fourth century those 300s and he was considered very compassionate and very caring here we again we have a saint like Bridget, who t- uh was kind helped the poor uh, both humans and animals and of course, you know the great story: the Satan is invoked for protection against injuries uh-huh. and illnesses of the throat. And there, you know, the story is so uh, lovely. I guess we want to say it's a miraculous curing of a young boy choking on a fish bone. And I've always thought, boy, that fish bone must have been really big. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> to be must have been a big fish or a big fish bone. But um, but the fact is, he that a miracle happened, and so. When you go in this this beautiful ritual the blessing of throat um it will be you'll see traditionally it's two crosses are placed over the throats of the faithful while prayers of saint Blaise's intercession are recited so th- yeah. this is a good day well, i've seen also that.
2: the tradition at times of candles that are are placed mm-hmm. around the, the throat too for obviously a That's variation true. there thank you yeah yeah well and cross, and candles for those who uh, wonder uh we have very early testimony uh, about Blaise's uh, intercessory gifts when it came to things uh, lodged in our throat. Uh, I think it was a medical writer, Aetius Amadenus, uh, about 200 years after Blaze's death, actually made reference, and he's a medical writer. So he made reference to the fact that Blaze was somebody that you, you ask for their help uh, if you have ailments of the throat, in particular something stuck in the throat.
11: Now, anybody in live radio knows that when you have that first cough, you start praying to St. blaze. <laughs> when you start getting your throat, starts getting swelling up. Oh, boy, I know Bruce McGregor taught me that one a long time ago. And you know what? It always comes through.
2: Those, the other the prayers. other thing, you're absolutely right. And I think both of us, but you've been on radio a lot longer than I have. But uh, uh, I know that uh, blaze is also the patron saint of wool combers, isn't he?
11: I believe he is, and see, this is the thing. There's many of the associations, the patronages of the saints. Sometimes they surprise us, don't they?
2: He does, yeah. And in this case, if I'm remembering correctly, he was uh, supposedly tortured to death uh, by metal combs; Mm -hmm. uh, hence, uh, the the connection with wool combers.
11: Well, that that is. I'm not a uh, a expert in that particular. Area. <laughs> <So I'm> not <laughs> yeah. sure how you even use those.
2: Well, but, um, someone seemed to be very proficient at it, so we'll we'll uh, leave yeah,
11: it at that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah.
11: That's, you know you hear those kind of stories. Now a saint that's not in February, but Saint Lawrence the Deacon. I mean, that's that you often hear those stories. Yes, that yes, you do. Really
2: well, uh, Chris, hold it right there. We're going to be right back with a lot more to talk about, including Paul Mickey, Josephine Bakita, and two doctors of the Church. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
6: It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk.
12: Parents often resort to scolding, coaxing, or even bribing to get our kids to help with household chores. But what if I told you there's a more effective approach? The next time your child does anything helpful, pause to appreciate them. Say something like, hey, I noticed you put away your dirty dishes without being asked. Thanks for that. It's really thoughtful and responsible of you. You can even put a cherry on the top of your gratitude with a warm hug, a fist bump, or some other sign of affection. A few words of thanks are much more powerful than a whole paragraph of nagging or criticizing. Over time, you'll notice that these expressions of gratitude not only encourage more helpfulness from your kids, but more gratitude, too. Get more great parenting tips at CatholicHOM.com, or check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace, or Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Fenton. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit
6: CatholicCounselors.com.
5: Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. How are we treating God? Are we treating him like a magic wand, a rabbit's foot, only going to him when we need something? The results if we don't stay in a relationship with God, and I know this from personal experience, much of the suffering that I had in my life has been brought on by my own stupid mistakes. We have to have God front and center of our life every day. As Father Michael Schmidt says, we're all called to be saints. We have to stand up and fight. We can't just grab God when we need something. He's not a slot machine. Putting coins in and pulling the one-arm bandit and expecting to win a big prize—we have to have that relationship with God, so we can truly do His will and be truly happy. So follow Him, not just once in a while, but every single moment. Catholic Connections,
7: Teresa Tomio, weekdays, 9 a.m.
9: Eastern, on EWTN Radio. The Wisdom of
7: Mother Angelica. I said to the churches one day, what do you think you're going to look like in heaven? Oh, some of them had absolutely magnificent ideas. I didn't think of one of them. And so I got desperate, because then my turn came, I didn't know what to say. And so in desperation, I said, what do you think I'll wear in heaven? And they all said, with one voice, armor!
0: EWTN.
3: Live Truth. Live Catholic.
0: This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit Christendom College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will
6: strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and the Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresto when applying. That's bestweekever.com.
3: Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
2: Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today, continuing my fun conversation uh, with Chris McGregor, who's the founder of Discerning Hearts, and we're talking about the Saints of February. We just discussed uh, Bridget of Ireland and St. Blaise. Let's, uh, if we can, Chris, jump across the globe to Japan and talk about uh, Paul Mickey and Companions. Their feast day is coming up soon on February 6th.
11: Very important feast day uh, on, again on the sixth. Paul Miki and companions are also known as the Martyrs of Japan. They're a group of Christians who were executed for their faith in Nagasaki in 1597. As we, you know, our first couple of saints that we talked to, they're a bit distant from us because of time. But Paul Miki and their story and the companions, it, we know this to be all fact and all true. Uh, Not only were there three Jesuits, but also the six Franciscan missionaries and several lay Catholics, including children. When they witnessed to the faith, it it is really so compelling. Because Paul Miki, he he was born into a wealthy Japanese family. He became a Jesuit seminarian and was known for his preaching and his deep devotion to, to Christ. When they were crucifying him and his companions, he famously forgave his executioner and professed his faith in Jesus Christ, affirming that the Christian faith is the only path to salvation. And you know, Matthew, the type of crucifixion that they endured was really different, of course, than the Roman method. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a crucifixion where your arms are spread out, but also your legs, and it's meant for ultimate humiliation. And... You know, to know that they suffered that with the composure that they did the, it, and uh, their unwavering commitment to their faith, even in their suffering, was um, it, it's such a testament to uh, others that it really helped and it impacted the spread of Christianity in Japan.
2: Yeah, it did, uh, despite the very severe persecutions, especially under the, the Tokugawa uh, government, or the, the shogunate mm-hmm. of uh, the Tokugawas. There's a famous uh, quote, you alluded to it, uh, that while he was hanging on the cross, Paul Mickey very famously preached uh, to everyone who was standing, looking at the execution. And there's, there are a couple lines from it. He said, the sentence of judgment says, these men came to Japan from the Philippines. He was talking about some of his companions. But I did not come from any other country. I am a true Japanese. The only reason for my being killed is that I have taught the doctrine of Christ, I certainly did teach the doctrine of Christ. I love the fact that he proclaims this so proudly. I thank God it is for this reason I die. I believe that I am telling only the truth before I die. I know you believe me, and I want to say to you all once again, ask Christ to help you to become happy. It's a a, a great witness from the cross.
11: It really is. And I think that's when we talk about religious persecution the witnesses of these type of, of of saints and the companions the ones we don't know their names uh but they are they for us when we feel we're being pre- persecuted for the faith we have to ask ourselves are we really compared to right. what they endured and if we do have that suffering to ask the lord to help us yeah. to be able to have the courage and the perseverance and we ask them too
2: right well and and talking yeah. about somebody who we know suffered immensely uh, in her lifetime uh, we're talking about josephine Baquita, uh, whose uh, feast day is february 8th
11: yes i mean that you talk about her story kidnapped at the age of seven matthew sold into slavery endured immense suffering was sold several times and the type of brutality that she experienced in those early days they left deep scars both physically and emotionally you know, on one occasion during that period of enslavement, one of her captors used a razor blade to make 114 incisions on her body. And then they filled the wounds with salt to ensure that the scars would remain as a permanent testament to her enslavement. And, you know, the, these physical scars were a stark reminder of the inhumanity she suffered. But they also symbolize her incredible strength and resilience because they didn't crush Paquita's spirit. You know, eventually she would be uh, sold into slavery to to a man named Laganani. I'm not, maybe not pronouncing that properly, but um, he was kind to her, even though he allowed her to continue in slavery. So I don't know how kind that is, but he treated her better, I guess. But she would ultimately return to Italy and she served for as a nanny in another household and when to make a beautifully incredible story unfortunately really short when um the family uh that she was the nanny for visited venice she met the kenoshan sisters and uh they left aikido with the sisters where she encountered christianity and, and her conversion was a complete The family came back, wanted to take her back to the Sudan, and she refused to leave the convent. She had to go to court. An Italian
2: court, yes, exactly.
11: Yeah, an Italian court.
2: (laughs) We can add, though, that that she stayed with the sisters and then was baptized, confirmed, and given her first Holy Communion by the then Archbishop or Patriarch of Venice, who, of course, is Cardinal Sarto, uh, who later became Pope Pius X., so you talk about uh, a, a grand welcome into the church. I, I think that certainly qualifies. Yeah,
11: she was known for her gentleness, her calming voice, her smile. She became much loved by the local community and her fellow sisters. And again, you know, she, uh, that is, here's another example of someone who endured so much, but um, her legacy is that incredible resilience in the face of human cruelty. And John Paul saw that as well. When he finally elevated her and and canonized her as a saint
2: yeah yeah and went to khartoum uh, her home Uh, i think she she was canonized in 2000 he went to khartoum just a few years after that uh, and made that point of her story of conversion but also her story of such immense suffering and it's a reminder too of uh, how many slaves right now we still have in the world uh, the slave trade mm-hmm. is very active, as is, of course, human trafficking. And I think uh, St. Josephine is, is a, a great role model for those who fight slavery as it exists today.
11: Yeah, in its many forms. In its many, many forms. So, yeah, St. Josephine Paquita, you know, on, on the 8th, be sure to get to know the saint and we have some other really great saints who are coming up, some doctors of the Church. That now, I know you know Peter Damon really, really well.
2: <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, Peter Damien, a bishop, doctor of the Church, uh, served uh, as a swineherd uh, in his youth. Uh, we have those great stories of the saints like that, uh, who suffered such terrible childhoods, uh, but then go on to extraordinary lives but it's always with the help of others who recognized in them, who saw in them their, their dignity.
11: Exactly. And, you know, here is someone who... It, it, this is another example of those doctors of the Church who... It, it's, it's fueled by their great prayer. And he was a member of a Benedictine order, a Reformed order, called the Camaldolese um, tradition. tradition. Yes. The Benedictines Jews might see wearing white. And but he, because he was so brilliant, they needed him. And so he would leave those, that cell of prayer to go out and try to help reform a church that was experiencing tremendous scandal at the time.
2: Yeah, and he was also a, a reformer in uh, an era that really needed to be a, a time of reform for the church. And he went on to write a very famous book, some would call it even... Controversial. Uh, certainly, there are some who would consider it controversial today. And, and I'm referring to the mm-hmm. Libra Gamorianus, which is the Book of Gomorrah, which was a testament in some ways to all of the problems that the church was facing, in particular from things like sexual abuse within the clergy and the failings of the clergy. And I always appreciate the fact that we can look back here we are in the, looking back in the 11th century that there were these great calls for reform, and great reformers stood up, and certainly Peter Damien was one of them.
11: Yeah, We can't go in despair, because we're going to have to remember what the Lord said. The gates of hell will prevail against the church, and they will not be overcome. And here we have Peter Damien, who was one of those who responded, the Holy Spirit will work through. Uh, individuals in the church and and so when we look at times and we think oh this is the worst and everything's collapsing
2: how, <laughs> right.
11: we, how can we not trust the lord in his word and don't don't despair be hopeful be Christians. be joyful yeah and trust.
2: well and one of the other hallmarks of uh, peter damian was he did not want to rise in to the heights of the church to the leadership of the church mm-hmm. he, he fought uh he really did not want to become a cardinal, let alone the very, very important role of Cardinal Bishop of Ostia uh, by one of the popes in in 1057. He he turned it down and then was basically commanded to accept it. But the popes who were trying to reform the church knew what they were doing at that point because they looked at someone like Peter Damien, who was this monk who was already beloved for his holiness and appointed him dragged him to rome and asked him to help reform certainly was in an era that needed reforming and sure enough uh, peter damien was exhorting his fellow cardinals to be authentic uh, to fight corruption and to fight for the authentic reform of the church and i think that's one of the things that we think of when we ponder uh, peter damien but we also have another doctor of the church we want to get to, and that's St. Gregory of Narek, Abbott from Armenia.
11: Surprise! Remember that day when I <laughs> came over the news, wire, you? you, and I both talked, we went, what? St. Gregory of Narek, I didn't even know who he was. But I'm so glad that now we do, because this is an incredible gift from the Church of Armenia, essentially. Our brothers and sisters of the of the Catholic faith in that region, what a incredible legacy that Gregory it's st- it's still being broken open
2: for us, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and and Pope Francis, uh, in naming him uh, a doctor of the church, he was declared a doctor in, in twenty fifteen. So that means he's the the most recent of the doctors to be named, with the exception of course of Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh-huh. And different month, so we can't talk about him. But uh <laughs> <laughs> Gregory is a figure that I think with Pope Francis he wants us to understand the the importance of Eastern Christianity. And Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask if you can stay for another segment.
11: Well, oh, for you, anything, Matthew?
2: Let's let's pick this up after the break by Gregory of Narek. This is Cresta in the afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen.
1: CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love.
5: 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope.
6: The fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. This commandment enjoins on us young children not only obedience to their parents and even older children, great honor for them, but also gratitude for all of our elders, teachers, employers, and leaders. It also directs citizens to a proper love of our country. So it's a rich commandment. And it also puts great requirements on those who are in those positions to be worthy of the honor that is due them. This commandment is fundamentally given to us by God because without respect for our elders, there can be no teaching. And we cannot hand on the wisdom of previous generations. This commandment is rich and it is for us. The fourth commandment, honor your father
5: and your mother. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. What does the Tenth Commandment condemn? When the Lord God told us not to covet our neighbor's goods, he denounced envy, avarice, and greed as the root of theft, robbery, and fraud. Greed, the Catholic Catechism tells us, is the desire to amass earthly goods without limit. Avarice arises from a passion for riches and the power that attends to their possession. He who loves money never has money enough says the Roman Catechism. The Tenth Commandment also requires us to banish envy from our hearts, reminding us that the devil's envy of God brought death into the world. Envy is defined as sadness seeing another's goods, accompanied by the immediate desire to possess those goods. Note, our Lord placed being poor in spirit at the top of the list of his eight Beatitudes. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
2: Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. It had been our hope uh, that Moncio Alvarado, President and the COO of uh, EWTN News, would be able to join us today. Unfortunately, she can't, but we certainly look forward to uh, her being on in the future. Happily, uh, we are able to continue our conversation with Chris McGregor about the Saints of February. And, and Chris, let's pick up uh, where we left off with the Saint Gregory of Narek uh, of Armenia.
11: Yeah, he was again born in 950 to a noble family in that region of Armenia, which is this on the border of southeastern Turkey, northwestern Iran. Okay, just to give everybody an idea. He was. Uh, he was received and cultured and had a literary upbringing brilliant brilliant uh, young man and he entered the monastery of narek and he never left Um uh, he was a famous school in the monastery and he became ordained a uh, priest and eventually becoming an abbot now his love was marked by an intense devotion to the virgin mary and he had trained great heights of sanctity and had mystical experiences and expounded his teachings in various mystical and theological works. His book of Lamentations is absolutely beautiful. Um, It hasn't been, you know, all of his works have not been fully uh, translated yet, but I'm sure, I mean, there are are those out there right now that could do very well in their, a Ph.D. dissertation
2: by studying into the <laughs> yeah, work right. right? of oh, no, well, right. You'll need to well, learn you know, uh, ancient Armenian, but yes. Yeah.
11: <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be somebody out there who could help us out. Well, but you're the, right. The, the Book of Lamentations, not, you know.
2: the Book of Lamentations, or it's often simply called the Book of Narek, but it, it's really more properly, I think, the Book of Lamentations. It's his take, if you will, on the Psalms. Uh, it's intended to be a, a kind of dialogue uh, with God, and What I love about it is that it's 95 prayers, but each prayer begins essentially with the same phrase, speaking with God from the depths of the heart. And I know that for you, that is uh, something that really does strike a chord.
11: Oh, as a contemplative, I mean, we're all called to that type of contemplation, especially of God's holy word. And I'm talking about the capital W, right? Yes. And what he does with those is he, he takes them like Our Lady, receives the word, and into, as we should, into our hearts. And then he reflects, he listens deeply. And then from that, he shares with us those insights of the Psalms. And I've been able to have an opportunity to, to read some of the translations of that particular book, as you said. And it's, it's so lovely. It's an encouragement for all of us.
2: Yeah, and uh, we can finish our little section here on Gregory by quoting uh, one of the prayers where he says, Although I shall die in the way of all mortals, may I be deemed to live through the continued existence of this book. This book will cry out in my place and with my voice as if it were me. And the the, the mission accomplished there for uh, (laughs) St. Gregory of Narek. (laughs) And
11: we know who he is. We're talking about it. But where is he leading us? As you have just beautifully said, he's leading us into the depths of our heart where we encounter God. And that's what all the saints do ultimately, right?
2: Yeah, they do. Well, it wouldn't be fair in a lot of ways uh, to talk about the the Saints of February without one or two others, and and one I know who has a particular interest to you uh, is St. Scholastica.
11: I'm a Benedictine oblate, and you betcha. Scholastica, St. Scholastica, the twin sister of our Holy Father, uh, St. Benedict of Nursia. Uh, And of course, he was the founder of Western monasticism. Uh, When Benedict was younger and he began to leave the the world behind, and after his parents had passed, he was able to sell all things and then made sure that Scholastica was taken care of. We don't know very much about her, but what we do know, we received from St. Gregory the Great in his life of Benedict. And, the, of course, the, that incredible moment that describes her final meeting with her brother at the base of Monte Cassino, where the monastery was. Uh, they would meet once a year at the house near yeah, the I love monastery. the fact
2: that they would meet once a year.
11: That's it. Yeah. According yeah. to the rule, they were not supposed to leave the monastery, right? Right. So, they had this one time. and. During the last meeting, Scholastica pleaded with Benedict stay longer and continue this discussion into the night. But he refused. He was gonna, he was being a good monk, good leader, and so she just stopped and she prayed, and this se- severe storm erupted, and it prevented Benedict from leaving. and that, and it really and Benedict looked at her and went, "Wow, <laughs> well, I'm <laughs> paraphrasing." But he couldn't leave. It was her deep.: face. Well- played, well-
2: prayer.
11: played, yes. <laughs> yeah, very good. And, uh, but it was lovely because it showed that, you know, God does listen to, into that engagement, that spiritual conversation. And uh, she would, have ultimately, as he's returning to Monte Cassino, uh, see a dove and she ascending into heaven, and he knew in that instant that was her soul, and that she died. And um, they would be buried together. They're now in the shared crypt in Monte Cassino, at the very underneath. Like there's at least two altars: the main one, and then there's a smaller one. And then you go down even deeper, and there now they have that spiritual communion. Those those twins that began in the womb are
2: there in the tomb. There's that great line from. Pope St. Gregory the Great, uh, in the dialogues where he's talking about them, where he says uh, that her prayers were answered despite Benedict's objections because she did more which loved more.
11: Mm.
2: So what is what, what are one of the lessons uh, from Scholastica for us today?
11: Well, it's that, that deep trust. Jesus, I trust in you. He he, he didn't write that she had an anxious prayer and made demand. She just sat in in peace, asked for this petition, and because God saw the sincerity of her heart, she didn't have to ask once, twice, bang on the door, or do anything. He heard it, and he answered it. And that's what we should be, is that, that prayer of peace. I heard Mother Angelica the other day. I was on the EWTN app and watching one of her classic programs, which I do often because it's so consoling. And um, she talked about that, that. It's the kind of prayer that Scholastica would have, that, um, yes, I, I know he hears my prayer, and if it's in his will, he'll grant this to me. And sure enough, he did that for Scholastica.
2: Yeah. Well, we also have this month uh, two brothers. It, it seems appropriate that we just talked about two siblings. Let's talk about uh, Cyril and Methodius, uh, who share uh, the feast day with Valentine on February 14th.
11: Yes, I know, and it's going to be a tough one for Saint Valentine,
9: isn't it? Because <laughs>
11: yes. that box of chocolates is going to have to wait. <laughs> but, or the day before. But yes, the the great brothers Saint Cyril, Cyril and Methodius, known as the Apostles to the Slavs, they were and, uh, and co patrons of years.
2: Europe too, which I think is uh, significant to point out. As, as John Paul II understood profoundly the the importance of the of the Church breathing with both lungs, as he always put it.
11: Absolutely, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, I mean, a lot of times we we forget about who were the Slavic people, Matthew, and they were located in, just above in Central Europe, weren't they? In yes. that area near where Russia, Poland. Am I, do I have that correct?
2: Yes. Well, exactly. Central Europe would be a, a good location to put them, but but the the Slavic peoples themselves. I mean, we we think of the Czech Republic, uh, we think of Slovakia, uh, we think of what was later called Moravia, so it's an important part, uh, and it became, so unfortunately, a bit of a political football uh, between the East and the West of the, the Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire, and in this emerged the two brothers of Cyril and Methodius.
11: They ended up uh, becoming tremendously educated and uh, were had significant positions within the byzantine empire before they dedicated their lives to missionary work they wanted to bring the gospel to the people of that particular region and so uh, if i'm not mistaken matthew they ended up developing a type of alphabet that used to describe the old church of Slo- slovenia Slavonic.
2: yes me. yes that's and right
11: that particular translation of the bible and the liturgical texts are still used today if if I'm
2: correct. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the Bible and liturgical books needed to be translated into the the, the Slavic, uh, and there really was no written form of the language or, frankly, even an alphabet. So, to their great credit, Cyril created one. And this, of course, uh, allowed him and his brother then to begin placing these texts in the right language and then began teaching... Uh, the slavics uh, the slavic clerics and others how to read the new written language and of course it it continued to develop but here we are that the creation of the cyrillic alphabet and i'm not sure how many people continue to read cyrillic today but imagine the genius that it took to do this with the one goal of bringing people to christ Mm.
11: yeah it's the the that bringing the vernacular using the language of the people to allow christ to speak to them in their language it's not un- unlike what jerome would ultimately do when he translated the bible originally into latin that's right and what would happen in in many other ways of being able to communicate the message so it became a part of who they are they heard that word the capital w in a way that they could absorb because it, you got to remember this is a time That's the only way they really did uh, experience the the teachings of the church was in the liturgy. And it was hearing the the Bible, it was experiencing the prayer in the vernacular that transformed hearts. And Cyril and Methodius knew this. And that's why they're still venerated, not only in the Eastern Orthodox Church, but as you know, the uh, Roman Catholic Church and even the Anglican churches Mm still celebrate. Uh, their great contribution as co patrons of Europe.
2: So we have to be fair and give Saint Valentine a, a bit of a doff of the cap because, as you as you correctly pointed out, this is a rough one uh, this year. Uh, as it, as we know, Saint Valentine's Day or Valentine's Day falls on uh, Ash Wednesday, so the start of Lent. Uh, but let's remember who Valentine really was.
11: Yeah, a Christian martyr from the third century. He's one of the most recognized and, of course, celebrated saints, especially for his association with the tradition of courtly love. But, But why? Why was he so important? Well, according to one of the legends about Valentine, he was a priest in Rome who continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret after Claudius II outlawed marriage for young men, believing that single men made better soldiers. So Valentine's actions were discovered. He was arrested, imprisoned, and ex- ultimately executed. You know, I I heard things about the legends of uh, and the stories, these holy, pious, wonderful writings about Valentine. It wasn't until I one day I went to Rome, the Basilica of Santa Maria Cosmedine. I know you've probably been there, where the mouth of truth is. The I have. La Verde, Steve. Yes. Okay, so you, that's where you stick in your hand. And if you're not telling the truth, boom, you lose your hand. But then Made again,
2: famous in many a, a film, body. including, uh, I think it was Roman Holiday, right?
11: Is that Roman Holiday? And I think there was uh, another one with Ro- uh, Robert Downey and Melissa, Marissa Tomei. And Mark. But anyway, um, at that church, inside, off to a small altar on the left, actually is an altar to St. Valentine. And there they say, this is the relic of Valentine's head. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, it, it's, it's so compelling. I mean, there are other places that may claim a, a relic or a saint, but this one seems to be a bit more authentic just because of the story of him actually being martyred in Rome. And so, yeah, St. Valentine, very real, uh, encouraged love in its purest form.
2: Amen. Well, let's just say, may the saints of February all pray for us, and let's keep them in our hearts and emulate them as well. Chris, a joy to spend this hour with you, and thank you for the gift of your time.
11: It was a pleasure to be with you, my dear friend, and your audience.
2: We'll be right back. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
0: The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jangle.
9: In St. Ignatius of Loyola's Sixth Rule of his Fourteen Rules for the Discernment of Spirits, St. Ignatius instructs us that when one is in a time of spiritual desolation, it is very advantageous to change ourselves intensely against the desolation itself, as by insisting more upon prayer, meditation, upon much examination, and upon extending ourselves in some suitable way of doing penance. What type of meditation is St. Ignatius inviting us to engage in during a time of spiritual desolation? Father Timothy Gallagher writes, Such meditation centers on those truths of faith, those words of scripture, those memories of our own life history, and similar considerations that reveal God's loving fidelity to us and so instill new spiritual vitality when our hearts are heavy. What might be your inspiration for meditation?
0: For more information, visit avimariaradio.net.
9: Dr.
10: Ray Gurendi. There's a simple step to raising a more grateful child. I used to say easy, eliminate half of their material possessions. I don't say that anymore. That's ridiculous. I say 75%. They don't even miss 50. 22 stuffed animals, you go down to 11. Not exactly a hardship. Simple step to raising a more grateful child. Don't be so free with the material stuff. Research has shown more generous people, by and large, have less. You give a child less, he's more willing to share it. He also is more able to occupy himself with things like boxes and dirt balls and rocks, worms. Stuff that doesn't cost a whole lot of anything.
2: Well, my thanks to my guest for this hour, Chris McGregor, founder of Discerning Hearts. Uh, I would encourage everyone to visit uh, her site at discerninghearts.com. There's a treasure of fascinating podcasts and information about the saints and the spiritual life there. Highly recommended I want to thank uh, everyone here at Crest in the Afternoon. It is always a joy and a privilege uh, to fill in for Al. I'll leave you with one last little quote from Pope Benedict XVI. He said that the Church's experience shows that every form of holiness, even if it follows different paths, always passes through the way of the cross, the way of self-denial. The saints' biographies describe men and women who docile to the divine plan, faced unspeakable trials and sufferings. They persevered in their commitment. A real joy to be with you. I'm I'm Matthew Bunsen. As I said, it's a a privilege to fill in for Al. I could never possibly uh, replace him, but it's uh, a joy to be here. Please take care and God bless.
1: Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.